channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, today we are honored we have back on the show uh, America's Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, known as a wor- worldwide as America's Rabbi. He's a noted rabbinic scholar, best-selling author. He's got many books. Hopefully we'll get, get the chance to talk to him about some of them. Uh, completely eloquent speaker and the host of his own podcast on the Blaze Radio Network. And uh, folks, we'll put, put, post this in the show notes, how you can get a hold of Rabbi Lappin. And Rabbi, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, or I should say, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. That's right. You guys are gluttons for punishment. I didn't dream you'd ever invite me back again. This is great. <laughs> You're actually our first two-time guest, Rabbi. First two-time guest. Oh, that's right. Yeah, good point. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I, I hope this will not confirm your, your, the wisdom of your earlier judgment not to invite people back. No, not at all. Uh, Rabbi, I'm going to dive in. I know we've only got you for half the show today. We have to let you go at 1.30 Pacific, so I'm going to dive right yeah, I'm, in. I'm sorry about that, but uh, no, I'm on no the problem. East Coast right now, and um, we're heading into the Jewish Sabbath in, in just a couple of hours, so uh, time is a little tighter at this end. No, totally understand. Uh, um, you, your podcast on the Blaze Radio Network uh, from, f- I think it was February 16th of this year, was incredibly provocative because the title was, There Are No, no Poor People in America. Oh, yeah. And yes. you say the Which, word I mean, I believe is- implicitly. So much of our problems, I believe, come from the, this terminology of the rich and the poor. But sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, no, please go on. I, I, I was just going to say, you say the term poor is meaningless, but you also said in one of your books that, that we wouldn't have the, the word poor if it wasn't for the Bible. Yes, excellent point. You're, you're exactly right about that. And, um, you know, without, without delving into the, the biblical side of it, Deuteronomy chapter 15, um, within just a few verses, seems to contain a contradiction. One verse essentially says that... Um, you know, follow these rules, follow this book, follow this life guidance system, and there won't be any poor people. And then a few verses away, it says, and, you know, always open your hand to the poor, for they will always be among you. Mm. Well, thanks a lot, pal. Which way is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know what to believe here. One verse says, um, 
you know, just follow these rules and you can, there's never going to be poor people. You don't have to worry about it. And other ones says, oh, they're always going to be with you, you know. Which is it? And uh, the answer is, um, is very simple. Ancient Jewish wisdom has, uh, has always said this is particularly interesting and it's presented in juxtaposition in order to help us understand that nobody, none of us are allowed to view ourselves as poor. That is not a nomenclature we're allowed to, um, to, to relate to, and it's certainly not an identification that we should adopt. Um, the, uh, the, the idea is that if you look over one shoulder, you're always going to see people with a lot more than you. You look over the other shoulder, you're going to see people with a lot less. And so wherever you are economically, you just know that there are a whole lot of people who would change places with you financially in a heartbeat, and there are a whole lot of other people who probably take pity on you. But that's how it works, because the term poor and the term rich, when it comes to human beings, are comparative. They're relational terms, not absolute terms. In other words, there is no way, there is no way at all of putting on any kind of number to the idea of uh, poorness. So is anybody below this figure, in spite of the fact that the, the government obviously has something called the, the, the poverty level and, or the poverty line, and it doesn't mean anything because the overwhelming majority of people under America's poverty line, you know, have color TVs and air conditioning and cars and live in their own homes. That's absolutely true. Now, these statistics I'm telling you are true. And so the majority of the population of this planet would change places immediately with people who are so-called under the poverty line in America. Uh, they obtain that simply by drawing a line at the lowest 30% of the population. But it doesn't mean anything. And one of the reasons the word poor doesn't mean anything is, I think, best captured by a young man I know who is a uh, chief resident in a hospital. He's one year away from uh, being a very highly paid medical specialist. I mean, really high. We're talking about somebody who next year this time is going to be making over a quarter million a year. That's pretty good, right, for a, 20, for a 32-year-old. Absolutely. And right now, however, right now, he is under the poverty line. He's sharing so, an apartment with four other doctors and um, working in you know, incredible hours that on an hourly basis he's not being paid much at all. And so technically, uh, a farmer who's struggling in Kansas is having money taken away from him to give to this young man. So one of the major problems of the um, so-called poverty industry is that they use snapshots instead of video. Now, snapshots are a really bad way of uh, recognizing reality. For instance, I can show you two snapshots of two smiling, happy couples, and there is nothing in those shots that reveal that one of the couples uh, is made up of a man and a woman, each married to somebody else, and this couple is stealing an afternoon of illicit bliss at the local motel, <laughs> whereas the other couple is long-term marriage devoted to one another. They both look happy and smiling. The two pictures are interchangeable. But a video would show that the first couple is on the threshold of causing misery to themselves and countless other people, and the second couple is looking forward to, to a, a life of tranquility and harmony. 
when you use a snapshot, you get a distorted picture of people's financial status. You've got to use a video. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the constant emphasis on the idea poor, on the word poor, doesn't mean anything because it's always relative to something else. And that's why when the government says things like the rich must pay their fair share, they don't define either of those two terms. The rich is whatever they choose it to be, and the fair share, what does fair mean? 30%, 80%, 95%? Fair is whatever I decide it's going to be. So yep. that's why I dis- dislike intensely uh, casual usage of words like rich and poor. No, it's a, it's a great point. You know, Dr. Thomas Sowell, who I know you quote sometimes, the economist, says that the problem with the statistics of these income classes is it's not the same people. Yes. <laughs> in, the, right. in each quintile or however you break it up. That's right. Rabbi, so this young I wanna... doctor right now qualifies as worthy of welfare, although he doesn't take it, and, and he, um, uh, all, you know, uh, but in a year's time, he's soaring, doing very well, probably being taxed at 80% or something, and, uh, and somebody else moves in. So right. that's, a, that's an excellent point Saul makes. He's exactly right. That, uh, it's not as if there is this vast number of people down there at the bottom of the American economy, and year after year they're slaving away and suffering in their poverty. It's not like that. No, not at all. Not at but all. There is a very strong vested interest in the government's poverty industry in, in uh, preserving that particular image in the minds of citizens so that people will continue being okay with this vast income redistribution scheme that's at work in America today. Rabbi, I want to follow up from a show we did with Father Sirico. We talked a little bit uh, about him last time you were on, and he yeah, said something. In his, he said something in his book, or wrote something in his book, defending the free market. He said freedom is not a goal or virtue in and of itself, and he said he values the truth more than his freedom. And I just wanted your reaction to that. Well. Um I, I, I'm not sure that, uh, I, let me put it this way, I'm sure if uh, Robert and I were sitting in a, in a room, we would, uh, amidst gales of hilarity, we would quickly <laughs> iron out um, where, we, where we disagree, and we'd, we'd, we'd probably come to agreement at the, at the end of the, uh, of the afternoon. But um, the reason I don't agree with it on, on, on the surface of it is that um, I don't want anybody imperiling my freedom. And uh, the fact that he says, Lappin, we're going to uh, have to chip away at some of your freedoms, but don't worry, we're going to give you the truth. Ah, you know what? Thanks a lot. You keep the truth. Just leave me my freedoms. And so um, the, the truth is, a, uh, is, is a, a, a very evocative word, but it's also difficult to nail down. Freedom, on the other hand, is really straightforward. Leave me alone. Just stay out of my life. Right. And well, that's you know, as much he, as, as any of us uh, since the founding of the Republic can ask of our government. He, you know, he made a provocative point that I've been mulling over, and I, I know Ed has been too, uh, it, that freedom, it, it, you know, it, is an option. It's a, it's a vacuum. It's a capacity. You still have to make a life because, let's face it, freedom can be used for evil too. So is freedom really the end-all, yes, be-all? Of course. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, very much there's an opportunity for abuse of freedom. As a matter of fact, 
um, people uh, people who damage their own lives generally do it by abusing the freedom they have to do so. And nonetheless, we still don't want government to hem us in in such a constrained fashion that nobody has the ability to damage his life. Because unfortunately, if you take away my freedom to damage my life, you've also simultaneously robbed me of the freedom to enhance and grow my life. But, you know, most, most of us, if we were honest, if we were asked to point a finger at the person most responsible for, uh, for, for the overwhelming majority of disasters and calamities that we faced, I think most of us would uh, point right at our own chests. Right. And, um, and, and really, the extent to which we are each culpable in our own calamities uh, is really only a matter of degree. You know, is it 100% or 80%? But, but we really are our own worst enemies. But, uh, but that is what freedom entails. Right, free will. Well, Ed, go ahead. I know you want to jump in here. I, I want to I try to, to jump in and just perhaps uh, channel Father Sirico right now. Uh, and maybe I'll just tie, tie to the fact that we were both born in Brooklyn as the, the, the rationale for behind this. Um, the, I think what the point that he was making in the book, and, and I have no doubt, by the way, that you would hammer this out and, and figure it all out. This basically the way Ron and I argue as well. We, we, we argue for a while and realize that we're not really arguing. Uh, but what he might say is, well, would you trade your, your freedom or would you, would you, would you tell a non-truth in order to remain free? So for example, if there were ever religious persecution, would you deny your religion in order to keep your freedom? Um, You know, hypotheticals are always tough. uh, Right, of course. Politicians invariably get into trouble answering hypotheticals, but I'm no no politician. Uh, I'm no politician. So I I would answer that by saying that um, in... In, uh, in the Jewish faith, there are very specific circumstances under which you are allowed to um, deny your faith. And, um, and what, obviously, saving your life is one circumstance. However, only, only if it's not being done as a public display. In other words, if secularism is being celebrated, and part of that is Daniel Lappin has to denounce his faith, well, that I would not be allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would and and as and as many many people of faith, both Jewish and Christian, over the centuries have done, have lost their lives. Never mind their freedoms. Right. So, um, but how about a simpler? How about a simpler question? What do you say if um, if you have to tell a lie uh, in order to protect your 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 freedom? In other words, to preserve your freedom. Again, it's hypothetical because even as I say the words, I'm thinking of all kinds of uh, uh, of, of of answers and responses to that. But but um, I, that, that's not well. I'm, I'm I'm getting into a philosophical quagmire here. I feel, um, but um, but I, I'm not sure that that truth and freedom are are, are really very often at odds with each other. But if I had to choose, if a government is, is saying truth or freedom, thank you, that'll be freedom, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, I, 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 go ahead, Ron. Go, no, I was just going to say in the context, maybe Sirico was already kind of taking the freedom for granted. 
Oh, I don't think we can ever do that. No, I don't either. That's that's true. But go ahead, Ed. It, it, no, it's it's and it's a it's a fascinating question, uh, the, the, and I, I think it would it would be fun. I would like the four of us to sit around a table and have uh, this conversation over dinner. <laughs> um, Look, I mean, but, one thing I'll tell you that I, I'm sure uh, Father Sirico would agree with, and, and that is that um, freedom is inextricably linked to economic freedom. In other words. It is much harder for you to enslave me if I have a few dollars in my pocket. But to whatever extent I am dependent upon you, it is to that extent that I am uh, um, uh, liable to to become enslaved by you. And so, you know, one of the the, uh, consistent patterns of socialistic governance um, is to remove independent financial ability from citizens and to increase everyone's dependence on government. And that's part of what's going on. In other words, my freedom very much depends on my finances. Yes, yes. And what's interesting, though, is that, and and this is getting back to the first subject we, we talked about, is one of the arguments made by many people about income inequality or economic inequality is that it gives wealthier people an unacceptable degree of control over other people's lives. Yet, it's really the, the exact opposite because, in a sense, the control comes from the fact that government is now redistributing the wealth and, therefore, the government's in control. That's exactly right. And, and you only have to ask yourself, you know, who has more control over your life, government or private agencies such as uh, business, for instance? Right? No business can seize my money without my consent, but that's something the government does every day. Which is a question that I wanted to ask you, which is, do you think that all taxation is theft? No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. I think that uh, part of a, a civil society involves taxation. I think that uh, that even in Egypt, which was probably very far from a civil society, even in the days of Joseph, towards the end of the Book of Genesis, um, Joseph, you'll recall, lowers the tax rate to twenty percent and exempts the priests. By the way, exempt, you know, so there's a <laughs> religious tax exemption, and. Um, he lowers it to 20%, and the economy of Egypt thrives and blossoms, and the revenue just grows uh, to prepare for the seven bad years. So we see that taxation has always been uh, an aspect. It's just that Pharaoh had taxation set at very high figures, uh, probably almost as high as the United States at the present time. And, um, and Joseph lowered them to 20%, which is interesting because... Uh, uh, the, I mean, since uh, modern Western history has been recorded and the, the financial figures have been retained, we now know that the taxation level at which maximum revenue is generated is about 17%. So Joseph was kind of just about right on. I'd love a 17% flat <laughs> sure. That would make all the sense in the world. And it would... Uh, it would probably launch uh, an economic recovery that um, that would thrill everybody except the far left that would focus on all those who are being left behind. Rabbi, on one of your recent podcasts, you put out a gedank and a thought experiment that said if somebody came up to you and said, Rabbi, give me $20 and it will lower suicide in your community. 
And then you discuss the morality behind why you would say no to that. Can you kind of talk about that briefly? Yes, the the um, hypothetical I raised was actually not so hypothetical because it actually cropped up in San Francisco a little while ago, which right. was to raise um, the tax in the counties uh, adjacent to the Golden Gate Bridge, Marin County to the north and, um, and uh, San Francisco, as well as uh, East Bay counties, uh, raising the tax fairly significantly, I felt, um, in order to construct a net um, a net suspended beneath the Golden Gate Bridge that would catch the jumper. Right. And uh, I argued vehemently against that because um, it's not the, the role of government to stop people from killing themselves. It is the role of government to stop other people from killing us. They're failing dismally at that, and that's where their focus should be. But um, on um, on trying to stop people from killing themselves essentially is writing a blank check to government because there truly is no limit to the various nets and barriers and walls and structures and counseling and telephones that can be done with your tax funds once you give the government uh, the authorization to take responsibility for stopping suicide. You can't. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's there. And in the context of two, say, private individuals, I think you gave the example of your daughter when she was courting and, and you know, it, the guy told her, well, gee, if you don't marry me, I'll kill myself or, or yeah. cut off my finger or whatever it was. And Right, exactly. It, and she said, yeah, the but I The answer is, well, you have to do what you have to do. Right. Because that's a form of blackmail if you give in to of it. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Rabbi, in that same show, you talked about three biblical punishments, put, putting aside the law. Uh, what are the three biblical punishments, and why do you agree with them? Well, uh, the first, of course, is the death penalty for murder. Right. And um, I agree with that because uh, uh, somebody who's taken the life of somebody else, uh, number one, doesn't deserve to walk this planet. And number two, the victim's family doesn't deserve to see that person continuing to enjoy life while their loved one is dead in the grave. And so, even at the I, risk, uh, even at I'm the sorry? risk that we might, even at the risk that we might put away somebody who is innocent. Well, I think the precautions for that obviously have to be uh, rigid and uh, and and very, very, very. Uh, very solid, and I, I, I think that uh, it is not, it, it's really not difficult to do that. In other words, um, one only needs to peruse the newspapers of the last year uh, to find horrible and gruesome murders around the United States where there's literally no doubt whatsoever that the person did it. Now, uh, there may be doubts on whether the public defender correctly represents, and all kinds of technicalities on which the person should get off, which I, I don't think are healthy. I uh, also do not think that, um, you know, 20 years to elapse between conviction and execution is immoral. I don't think that's appropriate. I, I also wouldn't agree with the execution of a murderer 20 years after he did the crime. Right. Okay. But, uh, so that's capital punishment. What are the other two? Capital punishment. And then uh, uh, the next is financial penalty, financial fine, which, which I think is wonderful because it, it really converts everybody into productive citizens. You, you have to, everyone has to work. 
And so right. you, you gradually move towards eliminating an entire class of society that has become accustomed to living on the largesse and generosity of their fellow citizens. Right. And, and, and actually assist the victims as well with the restitution. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. Exactly. I agree with you. And then the third one is, uh, is lashes, is um, beatings, <laughs> floggings. Yep. And this I'm is the controversial fan. one, Rabbi, that I I'm wanted to ask you about. I'm a big fan of that one. <laughs> a big fan of that one, because it would be, the, what I would eliminate is incarceration, which I think is, uh, is one of the great shames on America right now. Not only the huge number of people that are in incarceration, but um, the fact that we have an incarceration at all. The, the cruelty and the brutality that becomes part of the personality and the makeup of correctional officers, the, the needless barbarism that is inflicted on prisoners, the inter-prison, the inter-prisoner torture, uh, the, the rape and the murder and the beatings that go on within a prison with impunity. The, uh, the, uh, the, the system is utterly incapable of preventing it. And, to, you know, to, um, to ordinary lay citizens on the outside, people like us, find it hard to understand how do criminals continue to operate their enterprises from within the prison? How do they get cell phones? How do they get all kinds of things there? It just shows how little we understand about the extent of corruption in the criminal justice system. So, uh, so yes, uh, not only do I think flogging is a good idea, but I would uh, comfortably bet that almost any sentient man who is uh, facing you know, shall we say, three years or more, five years, 10 years, 15 years of lockup, uh, if offered the opportunity to substitute for that uh, 10 lashes, and no matter how painful, no matter the fact that he'd be probably in bed with painkiller for two weeks after it, uh, what, what man wouldn't rather have uh, uh, two weeks of agony in exchange for three or five or 10 years of his life? It's not even a question. Right. And as far as what is a better uh, deterrent for future malfeasance, um, I, I dare say, thinking back to the young man who was caned in Singapore for throwing chewing gum on the street, I bet he hasn't done that again. <laughs> so these are these would be public lashes. Um, no, I, I don't think I don't think that would be appropriate. I think that's uh, that adds humiliation that I don't think is called for. It would be well known that he had the lashes, but I, I don't believe it should be a spectator sport. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I no, should I, add, I, of course, that I'm not expecting any time real soon for, for this to be instituted. However, when I'm in charge, it'll happen very quickly. Understand. No, I think you make a very compelling argument. And, you know, even when you say things that are completely controversial, you think, oh, how could he be saying that? When people listen to your arguments, it's very cogent, and you've changed my mind on many things. So that's awesome. Rabbi, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in this political season, and, and I don't feel I'm calling you out here because you've, you've said this in your own podcast very recently. Um, but I want to tie it back something you, to what you said back on KSFO when you were on a local radio show here in the North Bay of California. You said your three criteria for selecting or voting for a president are integrity, wisdom, and courage. So my question to you is, why not Cruz rather than Trump? Yeah. Um, look, uh, you know, imagine we've, we've all got sons fighting in the Third Army in Europe in 1944, and it's December 44, 
And the Germans have just made this massive push into what would subsequently become known as the Battle of the Bulge. And, um, and it's, it's now a very, serious, a very serious situation. A quarter of a million German soldiers, we're talking about, you know, like 150,000 trucks and tanks. And uh, I mean, we're talking about a massive, massive battle. And the choice now is they ask us, hey, who would you like to lead your sons into battle? You guys get the choice. Um, there's this guy, General George C. Patton. He's well known for having said that um, the uh, the secret to winning is not to be a willing to die for your country, it's to make the other guy die for his country. Or, if you like, we can have Pope Francis, who believes in the sanctity of all living things, or he can lead. So who would you like to lead your sons into battle? <laughs> Give me Patton. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we'd all go with General Patton. <laughs> Even though he might slap a couple of them. <laughs> I'm sorry? Even though he might slap a couple of them. Yes, that's right. But who's more <laughs> likely to bring our sons back alive in victory? Oh, you know, right. I, I think we know the answer. So courage for and you is, is really the big one. So courage is a big one. And, and what I'm saying is that we in America today uh, are in a battle. Uh, we are at the lowest point we've ever been as a, as a nation. Uh, China is eating our breakfast. The, the Muslims are killing us on our own soil. Uh, our economy is, is truly a disaster. And uh, we've got a president who believes the biggest threat facing the country is climate change. And now we've got to choose who stands the best chance. Well, look, uh, my next week's podcast is entitled Trump Reconsiderations. Mm, okay. and, uh, and, and what I'm saying there is is that um, uh, only truly great people learn from other people's mistakes. And I, I, wish, I wish that I had learned from all the mistakes I've seen other people make. Right. But the very least that we should ask of ourselves is to learn from our own mistakes. And frankly, I'm unhappy and concerned that uh, Donald Trump does not appear to be learning from his own mistakes at all. He may not even see that they're mistakes. That concerns me very deeply. Nonetheless, the situation in which I think we find ourselves is in a sinking ship that's not really going to be afloat for very much longer. And I see two lifeboats in front of me. One of them is labeled Hillary, and it's got a big hole in it. I can see daylight through it. And the other one looks in bad shape, but I can't see if it's going to stay afloat or not. I've got to choose which lifeboat to go with. Hillary <laughs> is going to lead us down the road of more government power, more extension of government control into everyday life. Trump, I'm not sure, I don't know, he's an unknown, but at least there's a chance he might float. And you ask, why not Cruz? Look, um, I, um, if, you know, if, if somebody came up to me and said, Lappin, uh, I desperately need you to help me run my strip club. Um, and for whatever reason, either for pay or for whatever it is, whatever reason I decide to help him, my best advice to him would be to replace me as quickly as possible. It's not that I couldn't learn how to run a strip club. It's that my heart isn't in it. Right. It's just not where I am. I just don't think it's a healthy thing for society. So I can learn the technology. I can learn how to do it. But you really would be better off with somebody who kind of is like that by nature. Um, when Cruz uh, goes dirty, when Cruz sort of joins Trump down on the mat, you can tell that it's not his nature. 
that's not who he really is. And so he'll never be as good at it as Trump. Right. And I'm, Don't fight with the I'm pig. The pig likes it. I'm convinced that the limitless avarice, greed, ambition, and desperate desire for power and wealth evinced by Team Clinton is such that they will stop at nothing to win in, December, in November 2016. And so I ask myself, who is better equipped to deal with Team Clinton's dirty tricks, Cruz or Trump? And I truly don't know the answer for sure. Right. But I do believe that that's one of the most critical questions, because the alternative is the sinking lifeboat. Well, I look forward to your podcast, Rabbi, and, and, and we're at 4.33 your time. I know you have to go, so I, I want to respect that and not hold you up any longer, but I can't thank you enough for re- reappearing on the show, and hopefully you'll come back. And Thank we you will very post. much indeed, Ron. Ed, I appreciate it very much, and I hope you'll pop my, uh, my uh, website there for folks to, uh, to, to visit and buy my products, because that's called Free Enterprise. And yep. um, we, um, I look forward, hopefully, to uh, perhaps being invited back one day. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi, and have Thank a good you, day. Thank you, Rabbi. Have a great weekend, and uh, thanks for all the work you do. Much, much admiration for that, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. God bless. All right. Thank you. And, folks, we need to uh, go pay some bills, so uh, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Wow, Ron. That was the first time that we ever did a 30-minute segment with somebody. I'd like to thank our crew of, of uh, crack engineers over at Voice America for enabling us to speak with uh, Rabbi Lappin for the entirety of his availability uh, yes. to us today. So we appreciate that uh, sincerely. But, um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, of course, biting my tongue the entire time. This <laughs> Trump. And just reminding the rest of our listening audience that you and I will be covering the real, the third choice in this, uh, the Libertarian Party, the presidential nomination, or we are having a presidential debate, and that is next Friday, a week from today, April 8th, that we'll be covering on voiceamerica.com slash live events, two, e two E's, so live and events, and that will begin at about 7 o'clock central time, so that's what's uh, 8, 8 p.m. Uh, in, uh, on the East Coast, and then, of course, that is uh, at 5 p.m. in the West where Ron is. But, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask him about that because he talked about it, I think, on this most recent podcast, at least the one I listened to from March 20th, wow. I believe, or 19th. Yeah. yeah. So it basically, thinks because because Trump is gonna, it will will get down in the mud that that's that's the better choice for the Republicans against Team Clinton. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the evil of two lessers argument. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I there's there's something to it. Um, you know, like, what do they say about rolling around with the pig in the mud? You know, the pig enjoys it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so. Um, it's it's an interesting perspective. It is an interesting perspective on it. I you know I have to have to process all the way through on that. I, anyway, let's let's get to some of the other things that he he talked about, Ron. If if you want, and and it, one of the things that that I think is so critical in his argument is this notion that poverty in America has become completely relativistic. Absolutely. That they're absolutely relatively um, that <laughs> that there there is no such thing be, and I think that he's right there because and I think in the podcast that you mentioned he gives a biblical definition of of poor and that is someone who doesn't know who their next meal where their next meal is coming from for that right. this that coming day right Correct. yep yep and and I would imagine that there are some people in that condition in the United States. I, I, I can't venture to guess how many, but I can't believe that it's all that many who who have absolutely no clue how they're how, how they're gonna find their next meal. Yeah, I you know, and then especially when you hear that obesity is the big problem amongst the poor. Um, you know, Dinesh D'Souza's had a friend from India who said, I want to come to America where the poor are fat. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I know this is a controversial thing, but uh, there's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, Nicholas Eberstadt, who for decades has been talking about how the poverty measurement is, you know, completely arbitrary. It was it was developed by some bureaucrat at I don't know the Department of something at the, in the government in the 1960s. And Rabbi talks about that a little bit on that podcast. 
Uh, but Nicholas says, if you were to measure the consumption of the poor rather than their income, big difference, right? Your kid sure. is statistically poor, but not if you measure it based upon his consumption. He gets three squares a day. He's got food, clothing, shelter, all that. Uh, then Eberstadt says the poverty rate goes down to 2%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And, and that's and still relative, Ed. That's still relative. That's that's right. That's still that's still relative. Uh, I was listening, and one of the uh, I know you and I both are fans of Russ Roberts and his podcast Econ Talk, and, and one of the the fascinating, more fascinating ones that I've listened to recently talked this. I think she's a, a a food anthropologist, which is pretty much an interesting Venn diagram in and of itself. Right. And she and and she she I, I guess was the author of an an article. I'll try to dig it up because I, I really have been meaning to look this up of the wonders of the 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 Big Mac, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That if you that if you look if you if you look at the Big Mac through the eyes of oh just about anyone born before say I don't nineteen hundred, mm-hmm. you would be absolutely amazed, right? Because here's here's a, a a beef patty. She said, "You know, think about this. Not only did you were you able to to get the the beef, but you were able to ground it, right? So the the, there's a, the process of getting it so that so that this tough meat is actually consumable and edible, right? It's got fresh vegetables on it in just about anywhere in the world. It's got a sauce." <laughs> That is, you know, sauces. Sauces were a late addition from a from a food standpoint to the to the the palate. It's the the, the entire thing. The, the bread, right? There's there's a bread the bread component, which is probably the only thing that that people b- b- born before say 1850 would recognize, right? Uh, so pretty pretty amazing amazing stuff. Um, and you know that this goes along with another study that I've seen, and I want to get your your reaction to this, Ron. And I was going to ask the rabbi this. There's a, a lot of information that says there's not a correlation in happiness once you get above, say, I think it's around twenty thousand dollars a year in income. People right. are no no happier. No happier. I've seen thirty. I've seen forty. I you know. Yeah, that's usually the yeah. forty is household income. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I, I I take that with a huge grain of salt because obviously if you're wealthier, you can do more. You have better medical care. You live longer. We've got all these other stats that kind of go in the other direction of that. I think happiness is such a subjective thing. And a lot of those studies are based on what people say or how they feel at the time or what happened to them yesterday. I, I just don't know. I, I think it's just one of those areas where you just look at the studies and you go, hmm, I just wonder about this. Yeah, no. I, I, I th- what I find fascinating about it is that that I don't necessarily buy the the, the stats, the numbers either, because like I said, I think there are prob- pro- plenty of problems with it from a data gathering standpoint. You know, Thomas Sowell pointed that out when we had him on the show. But I, but I also do think that it's if it, it, the, the same people who who buy these other stats, like these income inequality stats. Would therefore have to buy these happiness stats, right? Because it's they're oh, using absolutely. This, the same kind of sample thing, right? And you yep. would say, well, well, but if that's the case, then you know, th- are we really are we really changing people's lives all that much by right. getting them past some in- by through income redistribution? Does it? it yeah. Clearly not. 
Clearly, we would not be, according to the, the same studies that you follow. There's pretty, there's pretty famous studies. The Economist talks about these studies all the time about uh, if, there's, if there's more inequality in a country, it's, it's mortality decreases, the, the, the happiness factor decreases, you know, all these negative effects. It's like, well, then why do we want to cure poverty? <clears throat> we should just keep people poor. Because let's face it, if we doubled everybody, and I always ask people who are into the whole Gini coefficient and income inequality, great. So let's say we can double everybody's income tomorrow with the same purchasing power. We'll double everybody's income tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You'll have less absolute poverty, no doubt about it, but you'll have more inequality. Right. Would you make that trade-off? And, and, and that, that usually just you know, makes people kind of shut up or, or they'll say, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, then you're not really concerned about poverty. Right. It, it, and that's what I've, I've, I've often said in arguments with people. Is, is I, I just see this whole income inequality as, as Marxist, classist, tra- claptrap in, in new wineskins. And quite frankly, they're not very good wineskins. No, not at all. He's Bernie. When he said Bernie Sanders, you know, the lifeboat from Bernie Sanders. Yeah. yeah I tax you 110% if you climb into it. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing, Ed, that I wanted to ask him about was the, the you know, the three biblical punishments. And, um, you know, capital punishment, you know, we know mm-hmm. where the Catholic Church comes down on that. And I, and I support it because uh, I do think it's a deterrent. Uh, and people say, well, there's no evidence that it is yet. Yeah, no, there is evidence that there is, it is. You can look up a guy named Isaac Ehrlich uh, from the University of Chicago. He's an economist that did just decades of study on capital punishment and determined that it was a deterrent. Probably 20 people um, deterred from murder for every one that you execute. And by the way, he was anti-capital punishment as a researcher and an economist. But in restitution, I'm all for but the lashes was fascinating to me. <laughs> now, it, he did say it wouldn't be public, which mm. he, he, I didn't pick up on from his podcast. I'm not sure if he said that, but I, 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 I do think, you know, it's a compelling argument. W- would, would you rather have five years in prison or, you know, 30 lashes or 20 lashes, whatever it is? And I have to say, I think he's right. Most people would pick the lashes. Well, I, you know, and th- this gets into a, a highly complex debate, and we we're right up against a break here again. But I, I want, want to just mention that the, the, first and foremost, it, it, as a libertarian, we need to eliminate some of the drug laws because the, the too many, far too many people are in prison for mandatory minimums of nonviolent offenses. So, you know, that that's just that's just my my thoughts on it. No, I, I, and it, I agree it, with that. I agree with yeah. that. But I, he's talking even beyond that. Right. No, I know. No, it's it's a fascinating idea, and I think I do think he's right though about the about the trade off. I do think that most people would say, "Yeah, give me the give me the lashes." I do. I, I that I spent two I, weeks I, in I would, bed with pay, with yeah. morphine or Vicodin yeah. or whatever, rather than five years of my life yeah. in a place where you know who knows how I'm going to be treated and and how I'm going to come out. <laughs> It's it's really an interesting conversation, but we're up against our last break here, so we want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at AskTSOE at VerisAge.com. Please check out the website, TheSoulOfEnterprise.com, where we will post show notes for this interview with Rabbi Daniel Lappin as well as all of our other shows. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. (laughs) 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., these are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We were here with Daniel Lappin in the first half hour of the show, so we didn't do our normal commercial breaks because we wanted to k- keep him as long as we could here. But we'd like—I would like to remind you—you you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. And Kirk Bowman, thanks for the tweet. We didn't get a chance to say hi from you to the rabbi, but uh, we we did see your tweet. So uh, thank you for uh, being out there and listening to the show. Ed, one thing that Rabbi said, and I believe he said this on a recent podcast, but he's also said this uh, in the book he wrote called America's Real War. He says today, and maybe for the last 20 years, because I think he said this in the 90s, he said anti-Christianity is a bigger problem in the United States than anti-Semitism. Hmm. Yeah, that's one where you scratch your chin, right, and go, hmm. But then, as you know, well, well define, 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 define anti-Christianity. Well, I, I, I certainly don't feel per- persecuted against, and I'm a good Christian, but you know, I, 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 I guess the war on Christmas, you know, Happy Holidays, and the, you know, just the whole, the naked public square, you know, the debate around that, stripping religion out of the the public square. Um, all of those things. Um, that's why I wanted to ask him about it. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to, though, but uh, he did say that. So maybe next time we have him on, we'll uh, I'll get him to expound on that. But I just thought that was a very provocative statement. Yeah, no, it is a provocative statement. I, I would have to think about it. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm clearly a possibilitarian and optimist however you want to define it and i you know i i i see the trends on all of all of this stuff uh toward toward greater toleration overall and I, I would hope so Ed. although i'm telling you i'm reading the recent cato newsletter uh from march april 2016 mm-hmm. and they have a thing they have an article in here called free to marry free to bake 
And they do make the point, and I'll give Cato credit for this, they were the first institution to come out both for same-sex marriage, but also the right for businesses to discriminate against anybody. Uh, Right. in their amicus brief, they wrote that, but you know they cite the two cases. The one in Oregon, the baker was fined a hundred and thirty thousand dollars by the government for refusing to bake a, a wedding cake, and this other gal in uh, Washington um, is being sued uh, by the district attorney and two private suits against her for mm-hmm. um, refusing to provide floral arrangements for a same-sex. Uh, Marriage and, and I think when you talk about anti-Christianity, I think that's what Rabbi Lappin's talking about. Oh. The Hobby well, Lobby case, things like that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I see that as more anti-free market than really anti-Christianity. I mean, perhaps it is. I don't. I, I won't. I won't assess. Well, it's this anti-religious liberty. Yes, it's anti-religious liberty. Yeah. I, Nobody would get their hackles up if if a Jewish you know bakery declined to make uh, the wedding cake for a KKK wedding. Well, but I, and I've asked that question actually. The way that the, the way that I usually ask is people would should a, a Jewish jeweler have to make a Nazi uh, you know a, a swastika pin? Sure, right. You know, some so someone who clearly advertises custom custom jewelry. Right. Right. So would, should should they have to to serve to to serve that? I and, and you know I think that that's a great question. I, you know you go, you go back in the history of the whole civil rights movement, and what you find is that you know m- many of the you know I don't think people a lot of people know this, but you know the 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 reason why some of that legislation was passed was at the behest of a lot of businesses uh, such as Holiday Inn, I think, and some other hotel chains that that that. Wanted the business, right? Oh, but they, they, but they, <laughs> but they, they wanted protection from the government for say so that so they could say, hey, well, this is the law now. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. You know? and, then what, and what they did, and what they didn't have, and I do fault them for this, is the courage to say, as a national chain, this is what we're going to do. Right, right. I mean, you, you know? know, this is something Thomas Sowell has written extensively about, but. I mean, look, baseball broke the color barrier. Broadway shows broke the color barrier long before. The Civil Rights Act. This was what in the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. um, and and you know because these were private these were private enterprises, and discrimination imposes a cost. I, I know we've talked about this before, and I, I didn't want to necessarily go down this road, but it's just it's an interesting question to bring up, and maybe I'll I'll, I'll ask Rabbi about his uh, his statement yeah. next time he's on. And, the show. and I just just yeah just to to go back, I I I, I personally don't see that as anti. Christian, but I, I guess you could interpret it that way. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, well, like we say, or like I say, Ed, if you think disagreeing with Ed is hard, try agreeing with him. So, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, you know, there's one thing that came into my mind when we were talking to the rabbi, and 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 just back to this whole, uh, and I want to share this story with the audience: is the relative uh, poor versus absolute, and all that. And, and and I've actually written a blog post on this, and we'll we'll put it up there. But it's a, a story about my my grandfather who. Um, one of the things that he would often say, we, we would be sitting on his back porch in a small little town called Ruby, New York. I mean, population 500 and something, really, really small. And, you know, they, they had my, my grandparents retired to a mobile home up there, you know, and, and uh, we'd be sitting on the, on the back porch some, some summer night. And he, he had this line that he would say, he would say, I wonder what the poor people are doing. <laughs> right. And, right. 
and it 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 was not it was clearly not an incrimination of the poor so much as it was an ironic statement that we clearly were not rich <laughs> but no i actually think it's kind of a blessing isn't it it's like that's you know, exactly how- what he was saying he, yes. he, yeah that's exactly what he was th- was saying is like you know th- there and, and what he was referring to is is definitely a biblical poor in spirit right yeah. It, that he 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 was clearly saying that the, the, those that are 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 suffering because clearly we are not this the life is good I'm breathing this air or yes. it, probably in his case he wasn't breathing fresh air he was smoking a cigarette and right. having a scotch but whatever um, <laughs> <laughs> well that's why life is good yeah. right it's life scotch, is good right? right that's what it was it was his yeah. way of saying life is good and it was not an indictment so that was just yeah. the the way that he would describe it, and it, it's it's always been, and the and the rabbi brought that up, so I'm grateful to for to him for for re- reminiscing about my grandfather today. No, that's awesome. And the other thing that I really find fascinating, and we will have to get Sirico and Lappin together, is that whole truth versus freedom question. Um, I, I, you know, I think Sirico's got the better of that argument, but I, 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 I struggle with it too. Yep. Yep. Well, I was channeling. So, hey, Ron, what do we got next week? Next week, Ed, we have risk is not a four-letter word. In other words, stop being afraid of risk, people. Risk is a great thing. We should embrace it. We shouldn't just needlessly you know, take wanton risks, but risk is where the source of all profits. So Ed and I will, uh, will banter on about risk is not, just a four, or is not a four-letter word next week. Sounds good. I'll see you in 167 hours, Ron. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and we'll be talking about risk. And in the meantime, visit us uh, at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post full show notes and how you can get a hold of Rabbi Daniel Lappin, his books, links to his website, and all of that. And you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thank you for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. See you next week.